Let's see if the squirrel fight picks back up again. It's the perfect time of year because they're all chonky right now. Mm. And so they're really done though. The Before I had the backyard all raked up, they were trying to hide their walnuts underneath the leaves. And I'd watch them do it and be like, oh, buddies. <laughs> like, I know I'm terrible at yard work, but even I'm going to be able to find those. <laughs> well, ours just come and take them and like, uh, it's just chipmunks that live in my front yard. Hmm. Yeah. They've dug like a big hole in my flower bed. Nice. I don't really care because it's not my house for much. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, fuckers. <laughs> but like we've got black squirrels and red squirrels, so the red squirrels are the meanest. Yeah. They red squirrels little... are like the gray with like the red. No, no, the tinge. little reds. Little red squirrels. Oh. They are like old man get off my lawn Mm. type of squirrels as soon as you see a red squirrel in the front yard you know you're not going to see any (laughs) other squirrels for a while (laughs) ours aren't that bad you have more black squirrels than gray squirrels around here the gray squirrels seem to get the the snot kicked out of them more often oh the gray squirrel the black squirrels are big but my god is that little my little red one that's (laughs) just lippy Oh, there's one day I was like, what is that noise? And I went out and the red squirrel was on my back deck eating the bird seed that had dropped. Right. And there was a black squirrel that kept trying to come up on the back deck. And that one was just fighting. Aww. Like, west side <laughs> story style. <laughs> oh, man. I was walking from my car to class the other day. And I swear to God, I thought I saw a, a black house cat. I was like, it's weird to full-on middle of the day to see a house cat in Sandy Hill. Like, that's odd. No, no, it was a squirrel. Big guy had chomped right up, <laughs> ready for winter. <laughs> I used to occasionally stop at um, a Canadian... Uh, Canadian hair. Uh, Tim Hortons on my way to work. There used to be a squirrel that lived in there, and he was a chunky monkey because he'd just get into the garbage yeah. and eat, like, the leftover Leftovers. donuts. Yeah. <laughs> Muffins. We shouldn't laugh. That squirrel definitely had diabetes. <laughs> and heart problems. Yes, I am sure. But he was living his best little squirrel life. I mean, what more could you ask for, really? Exactly. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to the show. It sounds like Andy's getting sick. I'm sick, general. I was sick last week. I'm still sick. So typhoid, marry that shit, and I don't think breathe I'm, on me. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm contagious anymore. It's mostly my asthma at this point. I just mm. really... I was listening to... Uh, so my dad wrote a porno on my way here, right. and I was laughing, coughing so bad. I was just like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was worried I was going to burst the blood vessels in my left eye this weekend watching the Seth Meyers Netflix stand-up comedy show. Mm-hmm. So when you have time, check that out. It was really good. Do yourself a favor, though, and just skip over the politics piece. Like, there's a handy, nifty button that says, like, skip politics. Instead oh, of, like, skip it? intro. Yeah. Because they did it for Netflix. Oh, okay. So you can, he says, like, I'm going to have them put it up right here. And you just click on it. Do yourself a favor and just click through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Skip to the funny shit. Yeah. But uh, it's a lot of, like, his parenting stuff, because he's got fairly young kids, and usually it doesn't speak to me, because yeah. not my context, but 
was seriously worried about the blood vessels in my left eye. <laughs> so I was laughing so hard. I was a little high, but I was laughing really hard. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about scheduling my uh, annual pilgrimage. Now going to make an annual pilgrimage to New York mm. around. Uh, my dad wrote a porno. Is doing a live oh. show April third, and then I was listening to this week's episode today, and they were talking about how all of their family is coming to New York to oh, Radio City boy. Music Hall. <laughs> I was like, now I'm definitely going to get my tickets. <laughs> so yeah, that's a huge venue for a podcast. Power to tool. play Radio City Music Hall, but yeah, yeah. So wow, good for them. Uh, you ready to dive into our stories yes. this week? All right. Uh, I went first last week, so that means you get to go first uh, this week. Woo-hoo. So tell me a story. Hold on. I gotta make sure that this does not restart. Good Lord. <laughs> Try tonight. Uh, so, uh, today's story is about cocaine and hippos and non-inva- an invasive non-native species. Okay. <laughs> and yes, I can link all that together. I was like, I feel like we need that, like... Always Sunny, or the the Charlie meme with, like, the thread on the board and the smoke and, the like, the, you gotta listen <laughs> look on your face. So I fell down this rabbit hole last week when I was homesick and watching the Grand Tour on Amazon Prime. Okay. Which, Top Gear, Amazon Prime, even though I'm I not a car head, I, I yeah. do love it. They're assholes, I know that. <laughs> um, and they're assholes to each other, but they're assholes to each other who care. Yes. They're sort of, like... I can see us when we're older and crotchety oh, okay. and be like, if we had that much money, we would do so- things like that to each other. It's the money thing. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm pretty old and crotchety at this point. <laughs> if we were forced to do that together, we'd be like, yeah, I'm going to flip over Lisa's car. So she's always like wondering what the hell. <laughs> yeah. Remind me not to drive with you. <laughs> Convoy style anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You'd hotwire my um, Jeep radio. So it plays raining men at a volume that is obscene. <laughs> no, that's a fairly decent song. I would have to go something a lot worse than that. Well, it's Jeremy Clarkson driving a Jeep Wrangler <laughs> through the streets of Bogota. Oh, he's gonna end up dead. <laughs> they are not friendly with the gay folk down there. <laughs> Yikes. I guess a Jeep Wrangler is like the car icon of the LGBTQ2 community. How did Amazon ever get them insured? <laughs> I don't know, because I can't. I was watching, and it's this episode that they were in Colombia. So in season three, their second, it's a two-parter. They go to Colombia, and, you know, have you ever seen the show? I s- watched a couple episodes of Top Gear, so the old version. I assume it's the same, same thing. It's similar, but, like, uh, especially in the last season, they, like, lose a lot of their segments, and they're just, they're focusing on some of the crazier stuff that they used to do on Top Gear. Like, okay. you know, once a season on Top Gear, they'd have these long, like, films where they go. Um, the first one, the one that I got into this show, is uh, our co-worker of ours, Sarah, and, and her and Pat were watching the one where they're in. I don't know if it's uh, Cambodia or Thailand and they were going through the country on these motorcycles and they had to get this uh, this item that they picked and one person picked a boat one person picked, and they had to get it from point A to point B and okay. they usually have to do it's sort of like slash obstacle course driving scavenger hunt something else like and okay. it's usually they bring stupid vehicles to try to do this um, the last one of uh, last one on Top Gear is the one they almost got um murdered in Argentina. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that one was actually pretty scary because uh, they they did they they were ended up getting like them and their crew had to like leave their cars in like the Corvettes and the like they had nice cars right um, and just totally abandoned them and try to get like out of Dodge Quickly. serendipitously yeah. like they had to take like these back routes and try to like sneak out of the country yeah was those. yeah um, so this one was they were going through Colombia and they had to take pictures of various wildlife okay like wildlife photographers so one of the guys had a monster basically a souped up um chevrolet um, truck okay that's richard hammond um jeremy clarkson had the jeep wrangler that i said and uh james may was driving he kept calling it a panda but it's like picture like a hatchback like little itty bitty that's the one that kept flipping over okay it was so light <laughs> but it also had all-wheel drive i don't know um and so one of the things that they had to do while they were in columbia is they had to get a photo of like a jaguar um i'm sorry a jaguar i know i watched too much of this show <laughs> a condor and a hippo okay in their native their wild habitat in the wild Right, so no going down to the Bogota Zoo and snapping some pics. But hippos aren't native. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) So, this is terrible. So, this story really starts with Pablo Escobar. Of course. cocaine. Ah, yes, okay. So, and I'm sure that most people know who that is, as do you, but in case you don't, here's a short bio for Wikipedia. Okay. So Pablo Escobar is a Colombian drug lord and narco-terrorist who founded and was the sole leader of the Molina cartel, dubbed the King of Cocaine. Escobar was the wealthiest criminal in history, having amassed an estimated net worth of U.S. $30 billion by the time of his death, which is equivalent to $58, $60 billion today. Yikes. While his cartel monopolized the cocaine trade into the United States in the 80s and 90s. When which co- I mean. Which cocaine was king. <laughs> if you were going to get into the cocaine business, that was the time. Yeah. Well, and he made it. <laughs> he made it the business. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. That was my device. It was not yours beeping and chiming. Um, he was raised in Molina. Escobar went to university but left without graduating. He instead began to engage in criminal activity, selling illegal cigarettes, fake lottery tickets, as well as particularly car theft. In the early 1970s, he began to work for various drug smugglers, often kidnapping and holding people for ransom. You're clicking really loudly again. Sorry. <laughs> In 1976, Escobar founded the Molita Molina Cartel, which distributed cocaine and established the first smuggling routes into the United States. Escobar's infiltration into the U.S. created an exponential demand for cocaine, and by the 1980s, it was estimated um, Escobar led monthly shipments of 70 to 80 tons of cocaine into the country from Colombia. And that was just for Wall Street. In case you're wondering how to picture 70 tons, (laughs) the space shuttle Endeavor Without yeah. fuel is 70 tons. So he was shipping, he was smuggling in a space shuttle worth of cocaine a month. Wow. Into the U.S. A month. Do you think he, like, had, like, PMP designations, like, working for him, like, people project management? Probably. Because that seems like a lot. That's not something you just slap together. No. <laughs> he was smart. 
I mean, I don't think you could be a criminal of that level and not be... Well, you're either incredibly smart or incredibly ruthless. And I think the best ones... Or both. Oh, he was definitely both. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was responsible for a lot of people's death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So as a result, Escobar quickly became one of the richest people in the world. Uh, And as one in this business, he was constantly battling rival cartels domestically and abroad, which led to massacres and murders of police officers, judges, local prominent politicians, making Colombia the murder capital of the world. Mm -hmm. He also killed two... Or his cartel was responsible for killing up to three political um, presidential candidates. Oh. Yeah. Well, lovely guy. That's a way to make sure your party wins the election. In the 1982 parliamentary election, Escobar was elected as an alternate member of the Chamber of Representatives as part of the liberal alternative movement. I mean, Hitler got himself elected, too. So, the, the, the like, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the alternatives. <laughs> Uh, through this, he was responsible for community projects such as the construction of houses and football fields, which gained him popularity amongst the locals of the towns that he frequented, giving him a Robin Hood type of persona to some locals, mm-hmm. especially in the area of Molina. Even before he was a politician, he was big on building community housing, schools. So he funded a, like a fair number of his riches into making sure that the people on the ground... And his area also considered him a good guy. Right. Pillar of the community, sort of. (laughs) Except for the fact that he was a drug lord murdering lots of people. Yeah, but, I mean, for the most part, those people were, I'm assuming, rival drug people to his. So as long as you stayed on his good side... And if you're worried about, like, the impact of his drugs, that was, like, Miami's problem. (laughs) Well, I mean, these were... People, poor people in rural Colombia, right. he would go in and say, like, hey, you need a new road? Here's right. here's my money and here's a new road. And as a consequence, you now grow cocaine for me. Probably. <laughs> um, so he was, not surprisingly, vilified by the Colombian-American governments who routinely stifled his political ambitions and pushed for his arrest. Escobar was wildly believed to have orchestrated the DSA bom- building bombing and the Aventia Flight 203 bombing in retaliation to them stifling his political ambitions. And probably, you know, them trying to arrest him. Right. In 1991, Escobar surrendered to authorities and was sentenced to five years imprisonment on a host of charges, but struck a deal with of no extradition with the Colombia president, Cesar Garventia. So... I guess he surrendered because he knew the president and was, like, good friends. Right. Now's the time to clear the record. Yeah. And then you can start all over again. Also, part of his uh, five years imprisonment was the ability to be housed in one of his own self-built prisons. (laughs) Convenient. (laughs) But in 1992, he escaped. And went into hiding when authorities attempted to move him to a more standard holding facility leading to a nationwide manhunt. As a result, the Melita cartel crumbled. And in 1993, Escobar was killed in his hometown by Colombian National Police on the day after his 44th birthday. Escobar owned a number of palatial homes, but most not- but his most notable property was the 7,000-acre estate known as Hacienda Nepolis, named after Naples, Italy, located between uh, Bogota and Molina. 
the estate, the front gates of which was topped by the plane he used on his first run to the U.S. What? So the gates, so, you know, you've got two pillars, and over that, so over the gates as you drive in, is a plane. That just sounds tacky. I can say this because the man is dead now, but it sounds tacky. Yeah, it's the first small, like, it's a small plane, but it's the first plane he used to do his first drug run into the U.S., Alright. So, I mean, there's... I guess that's a good way of being like, Haha, motherfuckers! I guess. But, I mean, if you've named your villa after Naples, and that's what is greeting your guests, is this tacky display of, I'm assuming, an old Cessna across your gate, I mean, I feel like we're getting messages here. And his interior designer probably had issues with it. I'm sure his interior designer didn't say anything. The man is responsible for, like... (laughs) Thousands of people's murders. It was also like the 80s, 90s. So I'm yeah. picturing just like the Golden Girls style look of like mm-hmm. wicker and true, pastels. True, true. So really, what am I looking for here? <laughs> exactly. What are you going for here, Elise? <laughs> uh, so, blah, 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 blah. The estate reportedly cost $63 million all told. And it included a soccer field... Dinosaur statues, artificial lakes, a bullfighting arena, the charred remains of a classic car collection destroyed by a rival cartel, an airstrip, a tennis court, and something else, which is what we're going to go into right now. But this is the problem with the Nouveau Riche. They're just no no taste whatsoever. You mean the dinosaur statues <laughs> next to the soccer field? And the fake lakes? I, I just, I and can't the charred it. remains of his classic car collection? <laughs> One of his few good qualities, I guess, was his love of animals. And as only a rich-as-fuck guy can, he added his personal menagerie, throwback to the Tower, Halloween Tower episode, uh, to his fancy estate. Escobar's private zoo was the home to 200-something, to some 200 animals. Wow. Including elephants, ostriches, zebras, camels, and giraffes. Most of the creatures were smuggled into the country aboard Escobar's drug planes. (laughs) <laughs> you just see like giraffe with like its knees up around its ears like the neck like rolled over on itself a couple of times <laughs> I think at that point he wasn't really trying to hide what he was doing fair but also like why like collect that many animals because he could. could but like he was worth 30 billion dollars I know but like I got two little shit monsters running around and the only reason they're still alive is because they're adorably cute when they want to get snuggles so like these other things that like have no like emotional bond like I don't get it it seems like a lot of work (laughs) for very little payoff I'm sure it was a lot of work for the people caring for them but he was not that person right yeah no true fair it was probably just a status symbol of look at what I can do Not, not not only look at what I can buy but look at what I can smuggle into this country. So of mm. course I can smuggle dope. I just smuggled in a motherfucking elephant. Good point. Good point. <laughs> yes. If I look at it that way, I now I'm on board with it. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, I'm there. After his death in 1993, most of the animals were transferred to zoos, except for the giraffes who predeceased him and four hop- four hippopotamuses. Three female and one male and a couple of rhino- rhinos were deemed too hard to capture, so they were just left behind. Aww. Trying to round up a 9,000-ton bull hippo. mean a 9-ton? Yeah, 9-ton, sorry. 9,000-ton. Would be a <laughs> big-ass hippo. Yeah. 
Uh, bull hippo is probably, you know, life yeah, I'm or death. Let it go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the rhinos were not as hardy as the hippos and died off after after a couple of years, but the hippos did not, and thus inspired the story. Okay. So, what do you know about hippos? They are the deadliest animal on the planet. They kill more people every year than all other animals. Um, and they're really freaking adorable. <laughs> and some annoying song at Christmas always sings about how they want a hippopotamus. Oh, yeah. Um, did you know that they're oh, also... we also have house hippos. Yes, in yeah, Canada. Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you know that they're also known as river horses? That's what hippopotamus means. Exactly. <laughs> Not shocking, as they live among rivers and lakes through sub-Saharan Africa, and hippopotamus means river horse in Greek. Uh, weighing up to 8,000 pounds, the hippo is the heaviest large, heaviest land animal after the elephant. Hippo, hippos seek refuge from the heat by living in water during the day, and at night they come ashore to feed on short, soft grasses and fallen fruit. The eyes and the ears of the hippopotamus are on the top of its head, so it can keep watch for enemies, mainly crocodiles, while lying low in the water. Hippos are considered to be very aggressive and have frequently been reported as charging and attacking boats. Small boats can be capsized by hippos and passengers can be injured or killed by the animals or drowned. Yeah, because then you're out of the boat with an angry hippo in the water next yeah, to you. I know. <laughs> in one case in Niger, a boat was capsized by a hippo and 13 people were killed. Yikes. I saw that you're. Uh, I saw one stat that said you're far more likely to be killed by a hippo than a lion if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, and they're considered vulnerable and are protected species, but are often targets of poachers who hunt them for their meat and ivory teeth. But they don't have. Well, I mean, they don't seem to have very many teeth. No, they don't. So it seems more like a dick move than an actual. They're poachers. They're assholes. I know, I know but I'm saying, like, at least with the elephants, like, they're a bit of a like. Yeah, okay, pay, I can see out. what you're trying to but sell. But they're also killing over meat. Right. And there's a lot of meat on the hippo. True. Thems are good eatens by the size of them, I'm assuming. I like them big. <laughs> I like them plumpy. Ooh, also the inspiration for a very fun children's game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, I go on to mention. Okay, that. good. <laughs> but I have... <laughs> so those four hippos on the unattended estate were like, spring break, bitches, and living their best life. It was Columbia. So. I know. They have no natural predators in the yeah. area, so the population have ballooned with the estimate of, of about 50 hippos living on the estate, which has been turned into a theme park. But what did it start off as? One male and two females or two females? And- three females and one male. So four hippos. So by like generation three, they're having like flipper kids. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty shallow gene pool. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, me 50 doesn't sound bad, but that's a huge, they're a huge animal. And that's yeah. a quick growth from four to 50 in 20 30 years. 30 years, yeah. Yeah, under 30 years. Especially when hippos have only one baby at a time, are pregnant eight months, and nurse for another eight months. Most zoos would love to have that sort of like... <laughs> yeah, with success rate. <laughs> yeah, like breeding program. My God. Also, fun fact, the average lifespan of a hippo is 50 years. <laughs> Yeah, talk about an invasive species. <laughs> like, they've just set themselves up for a natural disaster. So if all 50 hippos were living on the estate, it might not be as big of a deal. But as you can guess, they've gotten out <laughs> and spread to the surrounding areas. It's not uncommon to see, like, a three-ton hippo walking down Main Street no, okay. of a couple of villages or walking through, like, an elementary school. Nice. Yeah. Um, and they're common. They're so common that they're referred to as village pets. 
Because <laughs> they're so freaking adorable. <laughs> as far as I can tell, uh, there hasn't been any reports of human injury or fatalities yet, but they are also very naturally aggressive and tutorial. Right. And territorial, sorry. A tutorial. <laughs> <laughs> they like to give lessons on how to use Excel, uh, Word, <laughs> PowerPoint. Hence why they're in that elementary school. And like capsizing boats and giving tutorials, the two natural pastimes <laughs> of hippopotami. <laughs> so... But I guess, like, they don't have natural predators, so maybe they're a little bit more, like... And I wonder if because the earlier generation started off as pets, for the most part, if they're a little less aggressive. Yeah maybe, yeah, maybe a little more docile, but then that's going to change eventually. Because as soon as the population boom continues well, to grow, and then... If they're bombing through villages and having friendly conversations with the local children population, maybe it keeps being... Uh, I think I think people are still worried that it's going to... Well, yeah, because it's a giant freaking animal coming down in the street at you. Yeah. <laughs> like, rightly so. So, like much like Escobar himself, the hippos are very controversial. In 2009, a bull named Pepe was shot and killed by Colombia armed soldiers igniting the debate between the rightly concerned e uh, ecologists and those who view the charismatic animals as harmless curiosities. I found this great quote in a Vice article that says, we're observing a scary natural experiment of the world's largest invasive, of what the world's largest invasive animal can do to its new environment. Mm -hmm. The population boom of horny, horny hippos shows no sign of slowing down. <laughs> nice. That was I like that one. <laughs> Making authorities unsure of how to tackle the problem. Estimates uh, said that the population will grow at a rate of about 6% each year, and all of the females will probably have babies every single year. Wow. Uh, we know... Uh, as we know, invasive, non-native species are not a good thing. There's already signs that the hippos are starting to displace natural wildlife, like the manatee. Also, oh, hippos no. poop a lot. In Africa, their poop is very important to fish and other creatures living in the rivers. However, too much poop can cause algae blooms, low oxygen, and fish die-offs. And actually, there has been a recent massive fish die-off around yeah. Molina and in the river system, so they're thinking it's linked to... Well, also, as climate is changing and getting warmer, these algae blooms are becoming a serious So concern. you've got poop, algae blooms, too much poop, you got algae blooms, you got low oxygen, fish suffocate. Um, so they, what you're telling me is a uh, drug lord did something bad. Yeah, and... <laughs> And for once, probably not meaning it to be bad, but like his legacy, it just yeah. <laughs> keeps snowballing. Um, they're also causing crop damage and terrorizing fishermen. Because <laughs> it's funny, some articles are like the lo locals love them. Some articles are like they're terror, like fishermen and farmers are terrified to go near them. Well, I think when you're asking the local who happens to work for the tourism board, they love them. But when you're asking the local who has to make their living out on the river next to these massive dangers, yeah, you're going to get a different set of opinions yeah. on that. Some fishermen say as long as you know how to handle them, they're fine. Just so whack like, over the head with your paddle. Like, as long as, <laughs> like they're puppies. They're like puppies as yeah. long as you know how to handle them. Yeah. If you don't handle them correctly, then... Mm. <laughs> so I wonder, is there actual, like, like reports of injury, but, like, it's Colombia. It's not like it's the world's most uncorrupt government. Yeah. And they're also trying to push themselves as a tourism destination. Right. So, but what to do with them? No one really has an answer. They cannot be relocated back to Africa as they may carry diseases and parasites that are not found in Africa. So they could cause a whole mishigas of problems here. 
Their popularity means that organizing a cull is out of the question. Sterilizing the male hippos is cost prohibitive because it costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to sterilize one hippo. And I mean, who wants to have the conversation of who's going to give the vasectomy to the giant nine ton bull? Probably hippo. takes a lot to like knock it out. This is why it probably costs so much. <laughs> also a giant bag of frozen peas at the end of it. Uh, and in a country already grappling with bore, uh, with broader ecological crisis, such as legal dumping, deforestation, contaminated water, how dire of a threat is uh, several dozen hippos? Well, I don't know. That's why they call it a tipping point, because as soon as you hit it, you're screwed. Yes. <laughs> and as the thing is with invasive species, we've all seen, we've seen all types destroy ecosystems and totally rearrange their ecology, changing everything from how they look and work. There's no reason to think just because hippos are charismatic and adorable, they will be any different. So it's sort of a wait and see. The mm. Colombian government is also not throwing any money at it. They're not trying to contain it. Um, they have no idea what to do. I love hippos. Obviously, I think they're adorable. I think you need to go out there and call those suckers. Because talk to the Australians about what happens with invasive species. Talk to the fishermen living around the Great Lakes about what happens with invasive species. Oh, yeah. So let's... Let's look at a few other okay. problem-causing non-invasive, <laughs> non-native invasive species. So the first, uh, probably most well-documented case of this is rabbits, and that were introduced to Australia by the first fleet in 1788. They became a problem after October 1859, when Thomas Austin released 24 wild rabbits from Europe for hunting purposes, believing the introduction of a few rabbits would do little harm and might provide a touch of home in addition to a bit of sport hunting. Yeah. That, like, sums up the colonial mindset. <laughs> Perfectly. Doesn't it? Perfectly. I was like, oh, at least I love this quote. Like, with the actual, like... The, the whole colonial mindset of, like, actually doing it, and then, like, the long-term ramifications as well. Shockers! <laughs> the rabbits proved to be extremely prolific and spread rapidly across yep. the southern parts of the country. Because rabbits... Breed like rabbits. Breed, like, there's a reason it's saying, like, fuck like bunnies, breed like rabbits. Yep. Because they do. They have big litters. They're Often. constantly going off. Like, they're constantly going at it. Yep. If... My poor rabbit and his little stuffed square. He used to, like... Molest the shit out of it? Molest the shit out of that multiple times a day. <laughs> He'd just be like... Mm. It was the cutest, slightest, most disturbing thing. <laughs> like, no one make eye contact with the bunny. It's doing it again. <laughs> what I didn't realize at the time is... Because he'd do it, but he wouldn't, like, get off, let's say. Okay. When rabbits do, it's terrifying sound. <laughs> and he's only done he's only did a few times, and I thought he was like hurt. <laughs> so I go over and try to like right because he he like they seize up and they flop <laughs> over, and he's like, you're like, just like, oh my god, what's wrong with you? And then much later, I discovered he was <laughs> reaching his <laughs> peak, and I felt really bad because I was like totally. You became his sexual partner at that point. <laughs> Well, no, I was messing with his, like, jam. And I was like, oh, buddy, I'm sorry. It was after he passed away, but I was like, oh. Because I thought, like, the first time he did it, I, like, ran out of the bathroom with my, like, pants around. Because I was like, oh, my God, he's dying. Oh, no. This feels, I've been watching a lot of Family Guy. This feels like a Family Guy joke right there. It does. <laughs> uh, one big one for us here in Canada is Asian carp. 
and the fight to keep Asian carp out of the Great Lakes is a big deal. The U.S. government alone spent uh, five. Sorry, the U.S. government alone spent fifty million dollars to tackle the problem. Asian carp were introduced in, to North America in the '60s and have, like the invading mongrel horde, been moving northward to the fish-promised land that is the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Carp are successful invaders that have replaced native species in areas of the Mississippi River and its tributaries, making up for more than 50% of the fish by weight in some parts of the Illinois River. Consuming up to 40% of their body weight each day, this leaves little food for native fish to eat. They can grow more than 25 centimeters in their first year, and typically weigh to 2 to 4 kilograms, but can weigh up to 40 kilograms and reach more than a liter at meter in length. Also good eatings. Yeah, and on also like our rabbit friends can reproduce rapidly. Mm-hmm. Fun fact: silver carp are hazardous for boaters. The vibration of boat propellers can make silver carp jump up to three meters out of the water. Boaters and water skiers in the area of Mississippi and Illinois rivers have been seriously injured by jumping fish. And I've seen those YouTube yeah, yeah, videos. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Taking a fish to the back of the head when they're moving that fast does not look like fun times. No! Especially <laughs> when you're water skiing and they're jumping and it's just, yeah. I watched a young girl take one to the back of the head and that kid just went over like a ton of bricks. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it was funny. <laughs> so, European starlings. Okay, this... This little section I didn't even alter. It's taken from the Earth Rangers website, which is like a kids. Right. I think um, I've read I read about these somewhere recently. Okay, you tell your story, and I'm gonna try to remember where I read about it. So this is directly taken. So how did they 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 have a couple of other little headings before it? But how did they get there? European starlings were brought over to North America as way of controlling pests. And as pets by a group of people trying to introduce all the birds mentioned in the works of Shakespeare to North America. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah. And I wrote such sass for a website called Earth, kids website called Earth Rangers. (laughs) Again, colonialism. Right. Yes. Why are they a problem? European starlings form huge flocks many, uh, many times with more than 3000 birds. When a flock this size feeds on fruits and grains, it causes serious damage to farms, crop damage. These birds are also aggressive, fighting with native species over food and territory. They will even take over other birds' nests, leaving native birds without a place to lay their eggs or raise their young. And last but not least is Florida. (laughs) And there are problems with Burmese pythons. Yeah. Although Burmese pythons were first sighted in the Everglades National Park in the 1980s, they were not officially recognized as a reproducing species until 2000. Since then, the number of pythons sighted has exponentially increased, with over 300 sightings from uh, 90, from uh, 2008 to 2010. Ugh. Burmese pythons prey on a wide variety of birds, mammals, and crocodile species occupying the Everglades. So several species have declined in coincidence with a spike in pythons in southern Florida. So they've also already indicated the devastating impact upon native animals. Although the low detectability of pythons makes the population estimate difficult, some researchers propose that at least 30,000 and upwards of 300,000 pythons are likely occupy southern Florida, and it's this population will continue to grow. Burn it. It's Florida. No one will miss it. Just burn it to the ground. (laughs) The importation of Burmese 
Burmese pythons was banned in the United States in January 2012 by the U.S. Department of the Interior. Yeah, because they have enough running around in Florida. They don't need any more. There's a lot of other animals so uh, that I could have covered, but I'll stop there. Moral of the story is do not bring in animals that do not belong somewhere. Even if you are trying to swing big dick and show that you can import anything without impunity. So I'm glad he's dead because otherwise he might have some questions for us. Yeah, I know. But I, like in Newfoundland, they brought in moose. Yeah. And I mean, except for a few places where they've caused some like damage to forests, there's really been mostly a human population problem because. Yeah. I was gonna say like the natural predator for the moose is, is a car. car yeah and that means dead newfoundlanders because yeah. it's really hard to survive a moose hit i mean if two species like if our species had gone out of the way to design an animal that would kill us in a car we could not have done better than the moose oh no because the way that like the hood is just low enough to clip the legs and throw the moose up into the windshield like yeah People suffocate from moose yeah. more than anything. Yeah, you're more like, you're not dead from the impact. You're dead because the animal ends up in the your car lap. with you, in, in your lap, and then moves around, killing you because it is a yeah. massive animal. Yeah. Like, if we had sat down to design an animal to kill us in a car, we could not have done better Mm-mm. than a moose. Or a motorcycle, because you could t- get t- decapitated. On a moose? Mm-hmm. Right it. Yeah, but, like, I would just... Well, I guess they're pretty solid. They're not moving. They are not moving. It is a messy... If you see them, you can ditch your bike and, like, you still end up with damage. Well, I assume you do the cool, like, tip it onto the side and, like, go under the moose. Yeah, that's And then you ride it on the upside. That's not how it works. (laughs) You can do that, but you're gonna break a leg and probably take some skin out if you're not wearing leather. That's why wearing leather is very important. Or other skin saving uh, stuff they have for motorcycle wearers but yeah no petty mooser i almost hit two well coming home last week uh i was driving and i just saw one deer in the at the side of the road and as i passed that deer i realized there was another deer on the other side same thing happened so to i me. drove between two with girls in the car and i'm yeah. like ah! it's like it's like slow mo in your head yeah. right you're just like yeah you're like oh it was super early one morning. I was going into town and something caught the corner of my eye. So I looked, I was like, what was that? And just as I turned back, the second deer is coming around and like just barely missed the, the hindquarters with the left side of the car. And I was just like, oh, they set a trap. <laughs> well, my mom, when she was working many years ago, had a similar, but it was really foggy and she's driving as she's driving through the fog. She realizes that there's a moose on one side of her and a moose on the other side. So she's like, threading that needle but didn't realize because the fog was so thick so this was just at dusk like just after five which around 5 30 so it's just so i'm like i slow down so the person behind me slows down and then there's people coming so i'm like flicking my lights being like please don't hit this deer i remember where i read about the starlings now it was in the history of how we fucked everything up which is like a look of at like how close humanity has like come to almost killing itself multiple times over, like as a species. And <clears throat> starlings were originally introduced into Central Park. That was the deal with them. 
Like, they introduced, like, a lot of birds, like, from the Shakespeare plays into Central Park, and Starlings were the only ones who were, like, tough enough to, like, beat the shit out of the native pigeons and really assert their dominance. (laughs) So at that point, you kind of got to, like, give it to them, and you just back away slowly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Again, like, stop it. Exactly. (laughs) So that's my story of cocaine hippos. Ooh, I would never want to meet a hippo. On coke? On God, no. I've done a couple rails. No. <laughs> That's terrifying. Then they're less adorable and they're more just... Again, that feels like another Family Guy joke. That does. <laughs> Seth MacFarlane, if you're listening. Yeah, he is a fan. No. <laughs> All right, so my story this week. Um, I am a fan of Netflix's limited doc series. Like, I like to just, like, dedicate a Saturday to, like, binging them. So The Making a Murderer was probably the first really big one. And then The Disappearance of Madeline McCain was a couple years ago. Another great kind of lose yourself in it. And then The Family came out earlier this year, which terrifying look at really far right wing religious fanatics and the influence they have on U.S. politics and how that kind of leaks into global politics. Terrifying. So the newest one that just came out recently is called The Devil Next Door and is about John Demanyuk, who in the 1980s was extradited from the U.S. to Israel to stand trial for war crimes because he was suspected of being Ivan Demanyuk, who earned himself the nickname Ivan the Terrible for his actions at the Treblinka death camp in Poland during the Second World War. So it's a real upper of a, a doc to watch. Well, I'm glad you're going after me and I love <laughs> cocaine hippos. Right. Not yes. too light, but light enough. Yes. There are no jokes in this one. <laughs> so I was almost de- like completely distracted during the first episode of the doc because the term Nazi hunter really captured my imagination. And I was laying out a framework for like how I would talk about Nazi hunting in an episode. So that's what this story is all about. Uh, And then as I started doing the actual digging into it, it became less about individual Nazi hunters and more about the effort to bring Nazis to justice after the war. It's appropriate because we are recording on Remembrance Day. (laughs) So also a trigger warning that this isn't going to be the easiest story to get through, though I'm going as light in details as possible. But we all know what the score is. So that documentary had some really heartbreaking footage of the testimony of Demaniuk's trial in Israel of survivors and victims and witnesses mm. of his activities. It was, it's a rough watching, but still worth it. So before we get to the hunting though, uh, here's a really brief PG summary of what um, that profession actually, why that profession is actually a thing. Uh, you know, in case you've lived in a cave for your entire life without any access to any sort of media, in which case, welcome. <laughs> we're glad you found our podcast. <laughs> and we're glad you're free. Yes. <laughs> uh, for a potted history of Nazism and Nazi Germany, check out Wikipedia. Obviously, that's where a lot of this information comes from, just because it was an easy place to reference stuff and also my head because I've watched a lot of documentaries over the ages. So following the First World War, Germany was crippled by financial retribution from the rest of Europe. And for more on that, check out one of our earlier episodes, uh, Wait What, which I think was episode six or seven, where I talked about the official end of the Second World War, which only happened less than a decade ago. First World War, yes. It happened about a decade ago. And I kind of go into what that financial reality was. 
So after the First World War, this young upstart comes along who has the ability to convince people that Germany was being victimized by internal and external forces. And so by 1932, Adolf Hitler's National Socialist German Workers' Party had formed a coalition governing party in the German Reichstag, which is the German parliament. So he managed enough beer hall rants to get himself elected. Well, he was making Germany great again. (laughs) I see what you did there. Very good. (laughs) In March 1933, the, um, well, Hitler's party passed the Enabling Act, which basically allowed his party to pass laws, even those that violated the Constitution, without the consent of Germans' president or the Reichstag. So... The German people basically let him through the front door, and then he dismantled that door, the wall that was it was built into, and the building that that wall supported, and put his own party in charge of the rebuilding efforts. I don't... They let him in. I don't know if at first he was as... Oh, there was no secret. Oh, there was? Okay. He wrote Mein Kampf in prison about 10 years or plus before he was elected. That's true. And if you can actually get through Mein Kampf, because it's terribly written, it's the ravings of a madman you can get through it, it's it's all there. <laughs> all right, I tracked back my... <laughs> well, I, I've read the first 20, 25 pages or so, and our former co-worker, Amy, was asking about it. And I was like, oh, it is a terrible read. She's like, because of all the hatred? I'm like, no, because the guy doesn't understand grammar. It's a terrible read. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> no, no. Fifty Shades of Grey is like Pulitzer Prize worthy oh, compared to this. ouch. Like, the man does not understand the concept of punctuation at Ouch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what Nazi Germany is best known for is its systematic efforts to exterminate anyone that didn't fit in with the German ideals of perfection. Um, So while this was largely a targeting of the people of Jewish faith, it also looped in other cultural minorities who had long been social scapegoats. So like the Roma people, who back then were called gypsies, but that's no matter what TLC tells us, is not the politically correct term to use. If you're not of that culture, they can call themselves whatever they like. Roma, uh, Romachelle. Yeah. Travelers. Yeah. Uh, so in addition to the Jews and the Roma, those with physical or mental handicaps were also targeted, those who didn't conform to a heteronormative lifestyle, and those who opposed Hitler's party's politics were all put on the hit list. Throughout the 1930s, the Germans built up their military power and in March 1938 occupied the Sudetenland, which was an ethnically German corner of the Czech Republic, and that kicked off the Nazi spread throughout Europe at that point. I mean, Chamberlain famously went and got a promise from Hitler that he wasn't going to invade, and the ink wasn't even dry on that agreement before he was, like, rolling on through Poland, so... As early as 1934, the writing was slapped up on the walls about what the Nazis really wanted to do with the Jews within their borders. In 1935, however, even the most naive can no longer deny what was about to happen or it had already started. So in September of that year, Germany passed what are known as the Nuremberg Laws. This legislation banned sex and marriages between Aryans and Jews, and Aryans was the name given to the ideal German person. So think tall, blonde, blue-eyed, even though Hitler himself was short, brown-haired, brown-eyed, and looked like his genetic pool could have done with an extra layer of chlorine. But still, for some reason, everyone overlooked that aspect. Nuremberg laws also banned Germans under 45 from serving as domestic workers for Jewish people. So you couldn't be a maid or a, um, a steward of any kind in a German household if you're under 45. 
It stripped Jews and other non-Aryans of their German citizenship, which is the terrifying part, because the most important document you'll ever get from your government is your passport, because it proves your citizenship and all the protections that go along with that. Uh, and it also identified people as Jewish if they had three Jewish grandparents or at least two Jewish grandparents that practiced their faith. So when you do the math on that, uh, if you had any sort of Jewish background from your grandparents, you were going to fall yeah. under these Nuremberg laws. Because even if two of them were still like going to synagogue, that was it. So it was a really kind of all-encompassing set of laws. A loose. Yeah. A loose definition. Yes. So the hate train is bopping along terribly for a couple years as Hitler is trying to conquer Europe, uh, but not learning the lesson from Napoleon, he tried to invade Russia in the winter of 1941, and it went terribly. Either because he feared he wasn't going to achieve his goals of eradicating the Jews on his original timeline, or in order to lash out, historians agree that the failed offensive on Moscow is what triggered his final solution to the Jewish question. And at the Wannsee Conference of January 1942, plans were made to quickly and efficiently round up any remaining Jews in order to murder them. Former work and or internment camps like Auschwitz, Dachau, and Treblinka became extinction camps, with gas chambers being the most common method of execution. Russia really was the beginning of the end for the Nazi party. So, we have that going for us, luckily. On that June, Russian winter, man. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, because, like, honestly, it had changed so much from 1815. Yeah. On June 6, 1944, the Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in what is now known as D-Day. By May of 1945, the war was brought straight to Berlin, and that was when Hitler killed himself, effectively ending the Nazi government. As Allied forces moved throughout Europe, they started liberating the death camps, and the true horror of what the Nazis tried to do was being revealed. Uh, I've seen some historians argue that the general population wasn't totally blind to it, that they had a good idea of what was happening, and I've seen others argue that no, no one could truly appreciate what was happening there. However, I visited Dachau, which, don't go to Dachau if you're trying to, like, have a fun time. Don't go to any former camp if you're trying to have a fun time and some of the footage that they show like in their visitor center of like what the because it's just outside of munich by like 10 minutes maybe at most and some of the footage they show is of them interviewing people like yeah we can never figure out what this weird ash was falling out of the sky what did you think it was like if it wasn't snow if it, like it, it would have taken very little so like i tend to believe that more people knew about it or at least had very real suspicions than not. Yes. I don't think... I think it's both true. I don't think they could have ever... Right. ...imagined the true horror that we found out was there. Right. But they all knew something not great was happening. Something yeah. very, very, very bad was happening. But I still think that... I don't think anybody in their wildest dreams could have... Um, like, wildest nightmares, I guess, could yeah. have... Like, Dachau is a small, like, just spatially, it's a small space. So when you think of, like, how many people were coming through Munich on the trains into Dachau every day, every week, at some point you have to start wondering where are they all going? Like, you just, if they all stood up, you would still run out of floor space at some yeah. point. So, yeah, you're right. Like, it had never really been seen before. So there was probably some sort of cognitive disengagement with it. But on the other hand, there was enough signs Oh, yeah, yeah. There should have been a better knowledge. 
again, it's wartime. The Nazis weren't exactly the friendliest to anyone who questioned them. Yeah. So. Uh, probably a good bit of self-preservation, yeah. too. Like, you don't ask questions, you don't end up there. Yeah. I mean, and to give the modern Germans their due, they are not dicking around when it comes to remembering this and making sure that they never allow that to happen on their watch again. I mean, now we have the more nationalist groups that are getting louder, but I think for the most part, the German people as a whole are really anxious to never get back there. Like, you only get to be history's dirtbags once, and then, well, okay, yeah, twice. But, like... (laughs) In this capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You only get to do a atrocity yeah. of this level. Like, Cambodia's on notice. It knows. It's not going back to Khmer Rouge territory. Like, yeah. it knows. And the Germans do, too. So I think there's that, at least. But I digress. We digress, as we yes. really do. <laughs> uh, so, in 1942, Allied powers acknowledged that the German Jews were basically being systematically exterminated. At that time, the Soviets argued for the extinction of German staff officers at the end of the war, uh, whereas the Americans wanted to put them on trial. So we had one side, the Russians saying, just round them all up and kill them, as they did, because the Soviets lost a lot of their own soldiers in these death camps as well. So they had a a stake in that game. The Americans, surprisingly, were the moderating voice at that time. They came into it so late. It's not like they had the same skin in the game to say... Yes. The other allied forces. Yes, exactly. Uh, And in fact, it was Churchill who was kind of the moderating force who went down both um, and was persuaded to support the trial option because it would create a historical record that wouldn't allow Nazis to wiggle out of responsibility for the Holocaust in the long term. So he was all for putting them on trial with like the full consequences of being found guilty for murder. But he also recognized the fact that if you don't do that, you might find yourself having to try to explain to someone at the 40 years later what the Nazis actually did. Yeah. Whereas with the trial record, there's no question. Yeah. Although some people still say Holocaust never happened. Yeah, I know. But I mean, we stopped letting Mel Gibson make movies. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, on August 8th, 1945, uh, the Allied powers announced the official creation of the International Military Tribunal. And this was the court that was to trial or try captured Nazis for their actions during the war. And there were three types of crimes that the tribunal would consider. The first was crimes against peace, and this included planning, preparing, starting, or waging wars of aggression or wars of violation of international agreements. War crimes, including violations of customs or laws of war, including improper treatment of civilians and prisoners of war. And crimes against humanity, including murder, enslavement, or deportation of civilians or persecution on political, religious, or racial grounds. So they wrote the rules that were going to make sure that every single Nazi could be tried on every single. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. The tribunal would also hear cases against civilians accused of war crimes. And that was a little odd because it was a military tribunal. So you and I aren't necessarily ever going to get hauled in front of a court martial because we aren't military. So for this international military tribunal to say that doesn't matter to us. We're now going to allow ourselves a jurisdiction over civilians was a kind of a break in military tradition at the time. But again, because it wasn't just the German military, military, it was the German government. They had yeah. to allow themselves this purview. Well, it made sense. Like, they're looking at something that is so large. Yeah. A institution that was not just solely military. Yeah. The Nazi party and the government as a whole. Yeah. 
The tribunal was an amalgam of the legal traditions of the Allied powers in order to share responsibility and authority for the trials that were to occur. Uh, and this became the basis for the modern international court that currently sits at The Hague. So it's this weird little pocket of international law that doesn't, you can't assign it to any one country. It has bits of Everybody. a lot of countries. Yeah. It was decided that the German town of Nuremberg would host the tribunal, and there are a few reasons for this. Uh, the first was that the courthouse was relatively undamaged, which at the time was shocker. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the town had been the site for a lot of Nazi rallies in the past, and it was where the Nuremberg Laws, which, remember, were the first legal steps towards the Holocaust, were written. So this is a real fuck you to Hitler. We're coming, and we're going to re-script Nuremberg's history. In this. And we're going to set up in your favorite place. Exactly. So very little hunting actually had to go into the first set of Nazis that were put on trial. For the most part, they were captured as the Nazi government collapsed. And between November 1945 and October 1946, the first round of trials, known as the Trial of Major War Crimes, were held. 24 individuals, including Hermann Göring, who was one of the top officers in Hitler's government and military, and in fact was his designated successor, and six Nazi organizations like the SS were indicted to stand trial. So it wasn't just people, it was like the SS as a whole. Uh, common defenses included... It wasn't right to hold someone accountable for a crime committed before the law criminalizing an action was passed. Which, okay. If we're talking about, like, uh, stealing a hover car, like, you can't turn around and charge us for that, as there is no laws against stealing hover cars. But also, we're not killing six million hover cars. So maybe we look the other way on that one. It's also just murder, and in most countries, murder is... <laughs> a little frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah. Not allowed. Uh, the other common defense that these uh, dirtbags took was that the Allies were holding Nazis accountable for atrocities, atrocities that Allied forces had also committed. So, I don't remember us really setting up a whole bunch of death camps, but like, yeah. There obviously were cases where allied forces would rip through a German village or town and maybe not treat the local population as well as they should have. I get that. But, like... Again. Didn't look kill. At scales. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, between 1946 and 1949, 12 more trials were held at Nuremberg, and these were known as the subsequent Nuremberg Proceedings. They were directed by a U.S. military tribunal rather than the International Military Tribunal, however. Because at that point, the Allies were starting to disagree on the process, and the general alliance between them was breaking down because of communism. <laughs> so things were getting awkward. I was going to say, now everybody's fighting amongst yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah. Stuff was getting awkward, so the Americans just took over the responsibility for trying them. The trials were divided by type of defendants, so you wouldn't get one individual trial, you would get clumps of individuals, and they were broken up by uh, doctors, judges, industrialists, military officers, and SS officers would all have trials together. A couple interesting side notes from the Nuremberg trials. Not everyone was supportive of them. Some leading legal scholars of the era felt that they were show trials with the outcomes predetermined, so question whether or not they were legitimate. Uh, one U.S. Supreme Court justice was very vocal about whether or not it was even appropriate to try them. Because, again, it was new ground. It had never really yeah. been done before. The trials, however, led to the creation of some very important principles that we still are supposed to respect to this day. 
the United Nations Genocide Convention of 1948 and Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 as well, and the Geneva Convention on the Laws and Customs of War of 1949 all came out of the testimony and results of the Nuremberg trials. So, uh, the International Military Tribunal set the precedent for war crime trials as occurred in Tokyo for 1946-1948, Yugoslavia, which I talked about last week during the Peacekeeper story. Uh, Slovodan Milosevic went on trial in 1983, and then Rwanda, also 1994. Uh, let's see. Oh, do you know what the IBM and IBM computers stand for? Have you ever thought of that? Uh, I used to, but I can't remember. <laughs> International Business Machine. And it got its start at the Nuremberg Trials because they were being conducted in four languages. They needed simultaneously translation. And so IBM provided the tech for that. They were originally just um, for translation purposes and then spread out into the personal computer world. Hmm. And like IBM was the sole personal computer provider until Apple came along. And then like after Apple kind of broke down the door, like we have a bunch of different yeah. non like the PC versions, but IBM for the longest time yeah. was the only name in the game. It was funny because like I've worked at two places now and they all have IBMs. The oh, last yeah? three places. And I'm just like, is IBM still a company? Like <laughs> I can't remember the last time I saw an IBM. Like a ThinkPad, like a laptop. Oh yeah. Cause okay. uh, I think they're all they all have the same tech company working for them. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's who they're... I know that tech company. It does yeah. not surprise me that they're using this old school. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, international business machines. Started off as simultaneous translation tech. Yeah. So. So. Where does all of this leave us? So Nuremberg dealt with some of the worst of the worst who were easily captured following the war. But the Nazis weren't exactly unpopular in all quarters, and a lot of them escaped capture uh, or escaped Europe just disappeared into the winds. Yes. Poof. Argentina. Yes. The boys from... <coughs> yeah. Argentina. Looking at you, South America. <laughs> the boys from Brazil, a truly terrifying read. Many people in groups started working on finding those who worked to further the goals of Nazism and the extermination of the Jews. Mathausen concentration camp survivor Simon Wiesenthal founded the Jewish Historical Documentation Center in Austria in 1947 with the goal of collecting information about missing Nazis. His investigations led to the capture and trials of several of these individuals. His most famous success was the contribution of information that led to the capture of Adolf Eichmann in Argentina by Mossad in 1960. The subsequent trial was televised and included testimony from witnesses to and survivors of Eichmann's work in the implementation of the Final Solution. Weisenthal's work was also featured in the 1963-65 to 65 trials of 22 Germans for their actions at the Auschwitz-Birkenau camps, where an estimated 1 million Jews were murdered, and that's a full sixth of all the suspected victims. So Auschwitz was... There's a reason why everyone knows that name. The German government created the Central Office for the Investigation of National Socialist Crimes in 1958. Um, and as I said, I've visited Dachau and I can tell you the Germans aren't fucking around when it comes to their responsibility for this whole mess and this office well, I was reading some of the information about this office and it sounds amazing um, it's probably no surprise given the current position of the German government that the West German government decided to dedicate a lot of resources to finding and bringing Nazis to justice shortly after the war 
Currently, the central office has six departments, each headed by a prosecutor who is mandated to search globally for former Nazis, and it has a budget of 1.2 million euros per year. Oh. Not a ton of money? No. Not a ton of Nazis still running around. That's what I was just going to say, but there's not a ton of Nazis <laughs> yeah. still alive. So of the six branches of this office, it seems like there's maybe only one or two people working in each one of them. And they're really, they ha- they're obviously lawyers, but they're really archivists at this point. And so they spend a lot of their time traveling, going to see individual camps, going to different countries, looking through their national archives to try to confirm who's who put together. Yeah. Kind of mapping where people were at what time, that type of thing. So... Part Indiana Jones, part that time Harrison Ford was president and killed a bunch of terrorists on his plane. It's like this weird little amalgam <laughs> that they have going on. Part uh, librarian. Yes. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so <laughs> probably no surprise. They spent a lot of time in South America going through the archives there. <laughs> Which, again, South America, like, stepped in shit <laughs> after the war as far as I'm concerned. On the average, the central office identifies 30 living former Nazis each year. This was a couple of years ago, though. And once they're found, the information is turned over to the regional prosecutor where the crimes in question occurred for follow-up. So these people are spread all, all over the world now, but once they're able to put together enough of a, okay. a certainty that this is who you are, they turn over that file to the local, to the prosecutor where the camp was located or where the city where they were stationed were. Um, and then that prosecuting office has the responsibility to follow up and build an even further case. Like, the central office, their responsibility is just identifying. The prosecutors then have to decide if there's enough evidence to f- go forward. Currently, the office is sitting on 1.7 million entries into its archives, which record the names of massacres, battles, concentration camps, victims, witnesses, and perpetrators. Shockingly, there's only one back of backup of this archive, and it's on microfilm, and it's held in an undisclosed location. So let's fix that. But literally, they showed pictures. Their archive is a paper archive, and it's all, like, cue cards. Yeah. It's 2019. <laughs> this isn't the best use of resources or the best way of protecting, because it takes one really bad fire. <laughs> that is true. They're set up in, like, an old government building. Like, codes were not codes are real when it was built like i have i have anxiety around the current state of their archives we need to fix this for them if they're not going to do it uh the office's chief prosecutor in in 2017 was jens rommel and he rejected the title of nazi hunter because he said quote a hunter is looking for a trophy he has a rifle in his hand i'm a prosecutor looking for murderers and i have the criminal code in my hand I was like, damn, yo, forget the bat signal. I'm putting up this guy's face at the sky when I need help. This guy's not dicking around. Uh, the Americans also set up a Nazi hunting organization. Based on a tip from Weisenthal, the first guy I was talking about, the American authorities were able to capture Hermine Brausteiner, a female guard from the Majdanek and Ravensbrück uh, camps. And this case highlighted the fact that America had become a haven for Nazis fleeing from Europe at the end of the war. In 1979, the U.S. Justice Department created the Office of Special Investigations as part of their criminal division, and the OSI was mandated with finding, investigating, and charging those who had, between 1933 and 1945, participated in, quote, Nazi-sponsored persecution on the basis of race, religion, national origin, or political belief. 
The problem here is that Americans have no jurisdiction over Nazis, uh, Nazi crimes because they didn't happen in the U.S. So the OSI primarily concerned itself with nailing these assholes for immigration fraud. Because on their immigration papers, they weren't generally dumb enough to list guard at an extermination camp under previous work experience. Or their real last name. Or that their too. real first name. That or too. their real something like that. Yeah. So if they got caught in a lie on one of their, like, just one lie on their application paperwork, they would cancel their American citizenship and return them to the country of origin, or whatever country that wanted them to be sent to them. And that is how Demonyuk ended up in Israel on trial, by the way. <laughs> he had lied. He said he worked on his father's camp, or his father's uh, farm during the war. And then uh, they proved that was not true. <laughs> so much like Al Capone got nailed for taxes. Yep. These guys were getting nailed for, like, one lie on their application. So, well, we can uh, prove that you were part of the Nazi party and working at this. Oh, yes. yes. So we'll take your passport back now, please. Yeah. Get the fuck out. (laughs) No more Mm -mm. The OSI has been responsible for bringing successful legal action against 108 Nazis and stopping another 180 from entering the U.S. Not huge numbers. I think a few of them... Quite a few of them probably got through the cracks on that one, but that's still 108 Nazis that were flagged. Well, it's also, like, I mean, when were these, sorry, when was this group set up in the States? OSI was uh, 79. So, I mean, they're having to look through, because, uh, I mean, that the war displaced so many people, yeah. right? So the influx of people at that time would have been super high. Yeah. The fact that they managed to get through that many... Yeah. It was 30 years after the fact, too, yeah. so it's so easy to disappear at that time yeah. before computerization of everything. Like, you could have said you were going here, and then they could be in, you know... Yeah. So, again, it's pretty... Like, it's not a high number, but that's still pretty impressive. Yeah. I'm going to guess these are 108 of the dumbest ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who actually went where they said they were going to be and kept their name. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't think to, like, disappear into the shadows and well, the sewers where they belonged. I know. <laughs> so... The reality is that time is running out to bring these monsters to justice. Uh, they are popping up with less and less frequency. When they are found, they're generally in their 90s. Uh, and that's just a function of math. <laughs> uh, if they are still alive, they likely served as low-level functionaries because of their age at the time of the war. So they would have been 18 or 19 yeah. and if they're still alive. And that meant that they hadn't had enough time to build a career that saw them reach heights where they were likely the decision makers or issuing orders about uh, executions. Those who are found usually die during the legal proceedings because they can be very protracted. So add the additional stress of your past crimes coming up to catch up with you. They tend to die either shortly after the trials or before or during. As the perpetrators are aging, so too are the victims. Even those who were children during the war are disappearing, and quickly, since the physical toll of the war on young bodies often sees them aging faster and not lasting as long as they would have otherwise. The German Central Office that investigates these crimes has a hard deadline to close by 2025. It's hard to justify staying open much beyond that. Hmm. The work then becomes the remand of historians and not the legal sen- like the legal system. However, it is likely that it will close sooner than that, because, I mean, you're just, if you're 18, if you, like, joined just as the war was ending and you were 18, like, you're already mid-90s, if not late-90s, like, don't ask me to do math. But no, it's, it's, like, we have very few 
there's like only a handful of World War II vets. Oh yeah, still around. So I haven't they're... seen the pictures from today's ceremony up on in Ottawa, but I know here there was no. Uh, last year there was a couple of very clear World War II um, veterans. Yeah. There was none this year, and I don't know if that's just because it was a shockingly cold day for Remembrance Day here in Canada, and so they just decided not to come out. Or if that really means there just are no more left yeah. to this legion's kind of chapter. I mean, they could have been ill, like they're yeah. you know advanced age, right? Yeah. So, so we're we're losing this the greatest generation yeah. just a time, and the same goes for the assholes who perpetrated a lot of these crimes. Yeah. So, like you said, if you were just joining up at eighteen, the most you're doing is adding coal to the ovens. I don't know, like yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I just want to finish out on the last case of a former Nazi that was uh, caught recently-ish and sent to Europe to face their crimes. So in August of 2018, Jacques Palige, ugh, sorry if, well, no, I'm not sorry if I mispronounced that. I probably did, but it's fine. <laughs> so this dude lost a 14-year-long legal case to avoid deportation from Queens, New York to Germany based on accusations that he served at the Chaniki labor camp in Poland during the war. He was 18 at the time and claims he was only responsible for guarding bridges and rivers, and he served under duress as the SS had threatened his family. Camp records show, however, that he was actually an armed guard tasked with ensuring Jews were killed. So again, if you're 18, you might have been stoking fires. You might also have been given a gun and went to your head and God knows what you did. Um, let's see. Historical records show that Troniki was the site of 6,000 Jewish deaths on one day alone during the period that Palij was suspected of being there. Ooh. Final solution. Yeah. And this wasn't necessarily an extermination camp, but it was a hard labor camp. So, I mean, different name. There wasn't necessarily furnaces, but there was not enough food and hard labor. So, so. Also, I think towards the end, a lot of them just became... They're just sort of yeah. that final solution. That's, it's just like, we're losing this war. Let's just get kill done. everybody. Yeah. Mm. So also the historical record shows that Treniki became a training facility for the SS, where they were instructed on how to, and then tasked with, rounding up Jewish civilian Poles for deportation to one of the three death camps in Poland. And those trained at uh, Treniki also served as staff at those death camps later on. So Palij was first identified as a former Nazi living in the U.S. in 1993, at which point he was stripped of his American citizenship for lying on his immigration papers regarding the work he did during the Second World War. Yeah, a federal judge ordered him to leave the U.S. in 2004, but no country wanted to accept him. He had been born in an area that was Poland at the time, that is now Ukraine, and he had once worked for the Germans during the war, so he was the proverbial hot potato that no one wanted to touch. All three of them could have taken jurisdiction over him. None of them wanted it. The eventual deportation issue became a chess piece with President Trash Monster, um, claiming his ICE agents were awesome because they affected this arrest and deportation, and it happened in Alexandria Ocasio's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's then future district, and she was an outspoken critic of ICE. Um, much as you would expect with President Trash Monster, he's very single-minded. So every conversation he had with any German official for the first two years of his presidency included this issue. And so he, like, I don't want to say I'm, like, pro-Trump on anything, but, like, maybe with the Nazis, I'll, like, be pro-Trump a little, like, 
but then he is an... It's a whole thing. I'm very torn over this whole situation. He wanted to get it done. Right. And he was single-minded and dogged to get this... Yes. Piece so of he could... Yeah, so yes. he could check that off his... Yeah. Thank you, Train. <laughs> really? I thought we were doing pretty good, Train. We were... So the Trump administration used this situation to show that they were serious about enforcing immigration law, which there is, like, the fuck you, like, Nazis and small Mexican children. Not the same thing. Let's be very clear about that. Uh, And because, remember... Latin American children, because most of these kids are not from Mexico. True. Good point. Good point. Uh, Because, remember, Paul G. lied on his immigration application... uh, Trump used the whole ICE is doing their thing, making sure that our immigration laws are being upheld, and how could AOC be so anti-ICE? This is someone who was living in her backyard for so long, and it became this whole, like, political... Story, as it usually does. Yes. Uh, Let's to be clear, though, the Justice Department had been working since 2004 to extradite this guy, but it was only Trump going full Trump on this one situation and not letting it go that uh, actually saw the German officials probably do something about it just so he would stop talking about it. I mean, I assume that's why Melania still sleeps with him when she has to. Like, just shut up. We're done, okay? Heiko Maas, the German foreign minister at the time, said, quote, we accept the moral obligation of Germany in whose name terrible injustice was committed under the Nazis when explaining why Germany finally accepted custody of Palige in 2018. He was picked up in his home in Queens, removed on a stretcher, taken by air ambulance to Dusseldorf, and was immediately checked into a nursing home near Munster, Germany. While the Germans finally agreed to take custody of him, they acknowledged he was unlikely to face trial due to a lack of evidence that they could prove in court what he did. The BBC reported in January of this year, so 2019, that Palige had died in a home for the elderly in Allen, Germany. Um, again, he was 96 years old, so, like, Nazi or not, that's a really long lifespan. Uh, And it has been suggested that this is likely the last case we'll see of a former Nazi being returned to Germany, ostensibly to be held accountable for his or her actions. Although, that's been said almost every single time that it's come up. (laughs) Like These motherfuckers have a long life on them. But, like, it started in 1960. Like, people will say this is probably the last time we'll ever see anyone extradited back to Europe to face... I know, but, like, really? In the 60s, that's what you thought? Yeah. But, like, yeah... Exactly. I, I guess people didn't want to think that these like people lived in their neighborhoods and yeah, with pillars of their communities and stuff. Now it's like, so he was a Nazi. Okay, I'm I'm okay with digging him up, <laughs> sending him over there. Yeah, it's kangaroo, now it's just kangaroo court the shit out of this. I'm fine with that. Yeah, it's now it's just a well. They're probably not going to be alive too much longer. And that's my last and final point, that uh, given uh, Palige was 18 when he served, and he died at 96, it's conceivable that his death truly is the passing of an era, and the role of Nazi hunters is finally at an end. So, that is my story about... It was supposed to be mostly about Nazi hunters, and it really became about justice for the victims of the Second World War. Or at least attempting to get justice. Yes. I don't think we'll ever get justice no. so many lives lost i don't yeah so many potential days unlived yes yes very i thought it was interesting that they clumped the nuremberg trials clumped kind of defendants like doctors so those who like the mangala of it all and <gasps> industrialists like the anti-schindlers 
who, like, it's not a joking matter, but I think one of the funniest jokes to ever come out of The Simpsons was Mr. Burns complaining about Schindler, how they were both, they both made bombs for the Nazis, but his work, damn it. <laughs> I was just like, why? Why must you make this funny? <laughs> That's what the Simpsons and Family Guy does. Yes. Right? They take. Also, watching the Family Guy, a lot of 9-11 jokes in recent years. Yeah. I don't understand it. But anyway. So that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed. We hope you enjoyed. Yes. Uh, if you would like to know more about the show, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. There you can check out our merch tab that takes you to the Red Bubble Store or our support tab, which takes you to our Patreon page. And you can come on board as either a patron of the show or wrap us out in the big bad world with some of our merch. If you'd like to reach us on the socials, you can on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, Facebook Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. They are right now all being curated by the lovely Elise. Because <laughs> she has time on her hands. And Andy is a hot mess, as we all have well established. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> It is what it is. Uh, if you want to reach out to us to tell us about a rabbit hole that you like to fall down or that you want us to fall down for you, certainly send us an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what we're doing, rate us, give us a review, recommend us to your friends and family, tell everybody about us. Yes. I did that in class with my fellow PhD students yesterday nice. or last week. So hopefully we'll pick up some listeners because the one thing that doctoral students who are full-time students need is extra distractions from their work. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> That's what students do at best, right? That's what I did. Like, great. Not, not that you're shocked, uh, but I at least like think, to leave things to the last minute. What? I know. Fourth year reading week, uh, Anna Nicole Smith had just died, and I spent the entire week watching the trial about what they were going to do with her body. I don't think I've ever seen my dad more disgusted with me than <laughs> realized that that was how I spent the week. And you know what? He was not wrong. <laughs> like, I, but then I'd ha I do projects and I'd like have them done in time, like well in advance. I always get shitty grades compared to like the stuff I pulled out of my ass at midnight the night before. Pressure helps sometimes. Yeah, like I'll give me that. Well, there's only one last thing to do today, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.